Again, Luke chapter 20, we'll be starting in verse 1. And um, we see Jesus, he's coming in to Jerusalem. We saw his uh, entry in the triumphal entry, and we kind of read through Revelation compared to the, the end, the second coming of Christ in that triumphal entry, and the clear contrast between the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who came, who was slayed for our sins. And his heart, as he comes in for the nation, for the people of Israel, and how he's in tears, and he came in very publicly, even as a wanted man, comes into the temple, deals with uh, the money changers and the den of thieves, kind of, in the, the temple courts, in the court of the Gentiles, and sends him out, and he continues to sit there and teach and, and share the gospel each day in the temple in the midst of the Jewish leaders who are after him, who want him to be hauled off, who want him removed. And so he goes into the temple each day, and we know in the Gospel of John, he kind of every night heads out to the, the base of the Mount of Olives and prays there. And so as he's teaching there, we're going to pick it up again, and we see the Jewish leaders, they come, they try to trap him. They're trying this morning to get him not in trouble just with them because they had limited power with Rome over him. If they could get him in trouble with Rome, they could get him put to death. They did not have that right. That's the right Rome took away from the Jewish people was they did not have the ability to do capital punishment. Rome alone hold that. So they had to get Rome's approval. And so these Jewish leaders are trying to be very crafty and 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 ask questions and get Jesus in a situation where they can put him in, in bad light with Rome and kind of get that go-ahead to deal with him. And so he's there, he's in the temple, and he's teaching, and we're going to just see him continue to be this loving, truthful, but also very humble, which is, I think, is a key part of love, is how he came in humbly with it. And so... Verse 1, it says, And now when it happened on, that, on one of those days, that it, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priest and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. And they spoke to him, saying, Tell us by what authority you, are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? So now they come to Jesus, and it's always interesting when, when, when you have the priests, the Pharisees, and the elders, people that didn't get along with each other fought for power, and they're all coming together against Jesus, right? That should have been a sign to the people. The second all these people are coming in, it's like, what's, what's the deal? You guys never agree. And here you come together against Jesus, and, and they ask him, by what authority do you have that you, that you were able to kick these people out of the temple and you, you come in here and you teach? What authority do you have? You know, what kind of schooling do you have? What, where, you know, I don't see your doctorate. I don't see any papers. I mean, who did you study under any of this? And, you know, if Jesus was any one of us, it would have been, oh, yeah, and lightning bolt and gone. What authority else do you need? I mean, Okay, Les, I could just go back. I mean, you think about, I've raised people from the dead. I mean, what, why, why are you even bothering asking this question? What authority do I have? I mean, I mean, I just would have given it to him, you know. But it's not how Jesus responds. And, and sadly, these are, these are the 
priests and the scribes and the elders of the church, these are men that were given at a time the authority from God, and they did have authority. They did have recognition to take care of, to tend the temple and those things. And they were to be God's representative you know, to the world, the light of who God is to the world. And here they sit in front of the light of the world, and they're questioning the authority and what it is. And these are the men that should have known, that should have got it. If anybody would have said, hey, these, you, you should be the first, it should have been them. And what, 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 what is kind of concerns me, or not concerns me, but makes me think is, man, you know, it's easy to go, these, these foolish guys, I mean, I definitely don't fit in that camp, I'm not going to be one of them. But at the same time, we got to be careful we do not fall into that category. Well, we know the Word of God, we preach it, we this, we this, we this, and therefore we're missing out on what God's doing. And I believe that's a temptation with all of us to fall into the category of where these are. Many times when we go through these stories and we look at who Jesus is, we never put ourselves in that category, right? We always put ourselves, oh, well, yeah, I like this, or we're the, we're the disciples. We're not these religious men that should have known better, and I believe, sadly, many of them did, but their hearts did not know Christ. They might have known the Scripture in their head, but that never translated down into their lives and into their heart, at least with a majority of them, not all of them, but with a majority of them. And so here they're supposed to be the light of the world. They have Jesus, who became the light to all men, God's God in flesh standing in front of them, who they're supposed to represent, and they're asking Him, with what authority did you come? You know, what schooling, what piece of paper? Why, you know, where do you get to teach by this, you know? And, and it's interesting when you look at it, obviously, if we can, we'll get into, you know, God's authority here and how clear it is, it's all, all the way through Scripture and, and the list of things he could have brought out. Could he have brought out all the accomplishments? I mean, wouldn't this have been the perfect time to sit down and go, okay, look at all these prophecies I fulfilled. He could have been there for hours going, which one of you... Right? You want to talk about a theological debate you would have lost. And, and, and men that are supposed to know these things. You know, these weren't, oh, let me educate you. You, you guys should know these things. And, and it's interesting when we look at this and you go, okay, well, by what authority do you teach the Word of God or, or these things? And it's interesting in our culture and, and in our thinking, sometimes we look at these things. We look to... Uh, a piece of paper, we look to a list of accomplishments. Even when we look at um, to be a pastor, I, I think Chuck or McKay kind of mentioned it this morning, but you know, Chuck Smith was in there and it was the elephant room type questioning thing, and they had questions from the audience. And one guy goes, Okay, what if I desire to be a pastor, what should I do? And you know, everybody's bringing out the best theological school they believe in or whatever, like. And Chuck Smith goes, Well, if you can go in and teach third graders the gospel, you can teach anybody, you know. But there, there's a lot to that beyond just the ability to teach it. Be faithful to teach third graders. Be realizing that you should be able to love on even the least of these, these children who, who aren't going to think you're great or anything like this, you know, and, and very an unseen job in that thing. A lot of wisdom in that. But so when you look at it and, and you know, as, as serving in the church, you go, okay, men that desire to be a pastor, what do you give them? In our culture, we like roads, you know, how do you become? What's step A, step B, step C? And, and in a lot of times, you know, we want to shy away from some of that. I want to give definitely clear direction, but I don't want to give a list of things you have to accomplish to be something. 
And we can even go to biblical lists. You look at uh, 1 Timothy 3, you know, and you look at, okay, the desire to be a deacon and elder, and you can sit there and you can go, okay, well, I got to be this and I got to be that. And, I, you know, you start trying to check off your list so you can be something. But ultimately, instead of a, a, a list of accomplishments in your life, it should be a life that is being conquered by Jesus daily. Those things that are accomplished cannot be accomplished in the flesh and in your own strength. That list is not doable in that sense. It's something that God's done in you, and more that list is something we can go and go, look, this is God's standard, and God has done that in this person's life. You know, we want uh, to get through, and, and God... Definitely, if you have that desire, he'll raise you up, but continue to seek, continue to walk, continue to be conquered by his love. Let him be the ruler and the king of your life, and he will raise you up. And suddenly you'll start to realize, man, this horrible, sinful man is starting to look like something different. I suddenly start to fit into this, and boy, do I need to grow here and here, but God's still working on it. And that is really the authority. And when you see you know, over a, anybody can go to school and get a credential and stuff, but when you see men that God are truly using, we all understand it. If you're full of the Holy Spirit, you're seeking God, you have a relationship with God, it is not hard to recognize, regardless of a degree, regardless of a crowd or anything else, men that are full of God and have authority and speak with it and teach the Word of God. And it's real easy to see when somebody's abusing it. It doesn't line up. And the reason that is, is because when you look at Jesus and, and even his response here, there's evidence of it. In verse 3, he responds to them and he says, But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. And this was kind of common as, okay, you asked me a question. I'm going to respond with an answer. My answer is a question. Instead of just telling you, I'm going to make you think kind of like teacher-student type deal. And so rabbis were kind of used to this. And he said, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And so they responded, um, or, or they, they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, well, why didn't you, why did you not believe him? Because remember, John the Baptist said, this is the Messiah, this is one who comes greater than me. They knew that. And they say, and, and so, but he goes, if, if we say of men, verse 6, if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So if we say this is from heaven, they're gonna, he's going to ask, why didn't you listen to John? And, and if we say that he was, John was just a man and he wasn't full of the Holy Spirit, the people know better, man. They, they know this was a prophet of God. We haven't had one in over 400 years. We know John the Baptist was a prophet, and, and the people aren't going to take that. His life was too much of an evidence. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. So we plead the fifth way before the fifth exists. Oh, uh, you know, well, we're the scribes and Pharisees. We're the experts on these things, and we're not sure. We just, you know, we don't know. We're, we're going to try to keep this, you know, be, be politically correct here in that sense. Try to keep a balance because this, this doesn't feed a, uh, match our agenda and what we're doing. And so Jesus answered and said to them, then neither will I tell you by your, what authority I do these things. He goes, you're not going to be honest and answer me. Well, then I don't need to answer you because you already know the answer. 
You've already, you know, it, it's either you've decided one or the other. You've either decided John the Baptist, it was from men, you don't believe him, you don't care what God was doing, and you've rejected that, or you know John the Baptist was full of the Holy Spirit and you should have listened to him. You've already made your choice. You're not trying to ask me a sincere question. They weren't sincerely seeking God. They were after a political move. John the Baptist's life was evident. You could see it. Somebody could say, what authority was John the Baptist given? Because he was what? In the temple serving the chief priest? He was the chief priest? No. He was out in the wilderness. And God was using him. Without any of that, God was using this man without any of what would have been thought to be the credentials to be an authority at all. And here's a man that had no authority. And then you have Jesus and what else can you say about that? You talk about an authority. I mean, who else has done the things he's done? You can sit and look at those things. The answer should have been clearly, and they, and they did. But Jesus, you know, Jesus loves a real seeker. You see, when somebody really asks, the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, how does Jesus respond? He is truthful. He responds. He, Jesus, in that sense of if you are a real seeker, he's seeker-friendly. There you go. There's a term. That's a good term used in the right way. But far as... When it comes down to it, if you're coming to God with an end goal and a plan and, and you want to use God for your um, own devices, God isn't good with that. He's going to be lovingly truthful with you and correct you. You know, it's kind of like these Pharisees, are, I mean, you, you ever have a question where it's a trap question? I can think of several, but, you know, can you, you know, your kids finally at an age kind of figure this out, you know? Dad, are we going to Disneyland this week or next week? Well, we're not going at all. You know, if I was wiser, I'd say, well, are you going to clean your room consistently for this week or for next week? I mean, you could, really, you could do a qualification back. Well, yeah, we can go, but have you done this or have you done that? Have you obeyed? And, and so as they sit here and as Jesus answers them and kind of leaves them there at that point, and kind of stumps them. In verse 9, he starts to begin to talk to the crowd of people that are there. And, and he says, verse 9, Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went off to a far country. Now this was kind of a common practice in the day. Uh, common enough to where um, a lot of the archaeological writings and stuff we find are actually some of those paperwork. So you imagine like, you know, 500 years from now, people are digging through the ruins of Manteca and they open up a drawer and they start to read lease agreements. Like, you know, people didn't just save stuff because, hey, it was legal documentation. And so this was common. Somebody owns a, a land, they plant some vineyard, they need somebody to take care for it, take care of it. So they would tend, live there, tend it, farm it. And at the appropriate time or after a period of time and the trees and fruit get big enough, they'd either get a, a portion of the produce or a portion of the profit from the produce from that land. And so this is a common um, practice that, that the people hearing would understand, but it's also common to the Jewish leaders referring to a vineyard. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 5 goes through and talks about um, how the nation of Israel is like a vineyard. Many times the nation of Israel is considered like God's vineyard. And so he, he starts to put out this picture there. 
And as we go through, you'll see how these religious leaders and for generations these religious leaders have been like these vine dressers. In verse 10 it says, Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the wine dressers that he, they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the wine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So they be, he sends off a servant, collect, they beat him and send him away. Okay? And again, he sends another servant. And they then beat him also, treat him shamefully, and send him away empty-handed. So now they don't just beat this guy. They, they do some acts that are shameful that disgrace him, right? They embarrass him, and they send him away. And again, he sends a third, and they wound him also and cast him out. So now they, they're not even just treating him, you know, beating him up and, and treating him. Now they're, they're, they're wounding him, inflicting him with life-threatening wounds and casting him out, throwing him out. You know, they don't send him away. They're pushing him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But the wine dressers saw them. They reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. And I think the mistake they made there in 14 was when they saw the son, the heir, they must have figured, well, maybe dad's gone, and this is the last living relative. They weren't considering, or at least in their mind, the owner was a non-existent, wasn't an issue. It was only the servants that were coming, and then the son. And they mistakenly made the conclusion that, hey, if we can do this, it'll all be ours. And that shows their heart was for this land and things. And it, it, it's interesting, you know, the story even at the time would have seen impossible, not real. This would have been, it's just like you would have listened to the story and everybody there would have been shocked and going, what, what, come on. You know, I'm sorry, there's never a situation where you would have sent one servant, he returned and beat up, that you wouldn't have sent people to go wipe them out the first time. Nonetheless, a second, a third time than your own son. That's insane. This, this owner of this vineyard wouldn't do that. Nor would you. I mean, if, if somebody owed you, you know, rent or something like that, and you sent, you know, your account over to collect it, and they got beat up, you'd be calling the police. You wouldn't be sending more people over there to see what happens, you know. Nonetheless, your child at a point, you know, you, you wouldn't, you know, and especially your beloved child, you know. It would have been shocking. It wouldn't have made sense. You know, the vine dressers to act in this way would be suicidal in that culture. There is no way of a landowner that has possession like that and authority would you ever take an action against his steward. The steward came with his authority. An action on a steward would have been the same as an action upon him. It just wouldn't have happened. And so for the owner to continue to do this and serve... And we see this clear picture, though. We see this clear picture of who God is and who God has been to the nation of Israel. Again and again, God had sent prophets to the people of Israel, and again and again, they put them to death. The leadership always, the vine dressers, always rejected Jesus. And so clearly in this story, we see the vine dressers, we see the servants, representing the prophets and then we see the son Jesus as he sits there and 
It's important, in my opinion, to note and take a look at the fact that the vineyard is still the vineyard. The vineyard is still the vineyard. The vine dressers aren't the vineyard. The leaders of the nation always rejected the prophets, but not necessarily the nation of Israel. Not all the people of Israel were rejecting Jesus, but the leadership, those who were supposed to be the representation of God, continually missed it. And they thought they could take their inheritance, the kings of God, those heaven and those things by their own means, not by God's means, not by his plans. And it's kind of interesting, I believe really clearly too, you'll see it here, as he's going through the parable, now he prophesies twice. Now our story at this point in this time ends in the sense of actually what's going on because in verse 15 it says, and so they cast, speaking about the son, so they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Very shortly, those men that sit right near Jesus will be casting him out of the vineyard, out of Israel, not inside the city walls and killing him. This is going to happen. As Jesus shares this, this is going to happen. And he poses a question, what's going to happen to those guys? What, what do you think the owner of the vineyard's going to do at this moment? They're going to cast him out. So he poses that question. In verse 16, he says, hey, this is what's going to happen. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Again, that's a second prophecy. So the first one, I believe, has happened. That was Jesus on the cross. The second one is yet to happen. Because God is going to reign and he's going to return and he is going to deal with the nation of Israel and he's going to set up a new Jerusalem. He's going to set up others to manage it. He is going to have a new rulership over Jerusalem, but that didn't happen. Yes, it gets destroyed by Rome, but you don't see the 12 disciples ruling Jerusalem after this, do you? Do you see the new government? Anybody see a new government put in over Israel? besides the scribes and the Pharisees? No, not even to this day, right? That time hasn't happened yet. The, vi- the owner of the vineyard still is going to return to the vineyard, to Israel, and deal with it. In Isaiah uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 7 in the Old Testament says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are its pleasant plants. So he, he is speaking clearly of the nation of Israel in this. And there are some that say, oh, the promises of Israel have passed away. We don't, that when you go through Scripture, you don't see the promises of Israel have passed away. See, God said he's going to destroy them and give the caretaking of it to another nation, to others. I don't think that's happened yet. Far as the gospel and sharing the light of God's word, yes, we're responsible for that. But far as the nation of Israel goes... He's still dealing with that nation. It's still his vineyard. It's still his people. You know, for years it was taught that, hey, when you read through Revelation and all this, after, after that point, after Jesus, everything that replies to Israel and the promises to Israel are actually to us, the church. We are now his chosen people. They're not there. And that was a pretty clear, uh, common um, theology until about 1947, because suddenly Israel ended up a nation again, and they went, oops, well, maybe there is, and maybe there's going to be actually a temple set up, and maybe there is. And, and one key thing to that is, 
you tell me one people group that have been pulled out of their nation for thousands of years that's still a people group anywhere. They don't exist. Less than 100 years. If, if the United States went off the map in 100 years, nobody would be going, oh yeah, America and this and that. No. Nobody would be running around with a flag anymore. It would be gone. There is no people group that has ever survived that, but yet you have this nation of Israel. You have these people that have been preserved for God's time on it. And so as you go through and you look at this and you see these things, and, and he's going to come and deal with the nation of Israel again. This time hasn't come. And in verse 16, their response said, and then they heard this, or when they heard it, they said, certainly not. Some commentaries say, oh, you know, this story is so outlandish, they're shocked. Oh, certainly not. This wouldn't have ever happened. No. I think they clearly understood what he meant. He clearly said, hey, you guys, you're kicking the sun out and you're going to be kicked out of power. Uh-uh, that ain't happening. Certainly not. No, 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 no. We don't even want to hear this. You're full of it. You know, they knew exactly what was going on. And I think it's real clear in the next portion of scriptures here that you can see that they knew exactly what was being, um, what Jesus was saying by this parable. They, they didn't, there was no fuzziness in the, in the group there, you know. And, and they're so convicted in front of the people. Oh, no, no, they got to, they, at this point, they speak up and make a stand kind of back. Certainly not, you know. Verse 17 says, Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that it is written? The, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, there, there's, there's supposedly in history that when they were building the temple, the chief cornerstone, which in construction, you know, as everything is measured off, it supposedly sits in the side. It's the first stone from the quarry. Every stone is kind of cut in from that, in a sense. Um, there's some scripture that way. And when they got there, it wasn't quite labeled, and they threw it down the hill, and they had to go get it and bring it back up uh, to line everything up. But more importantly is, even if you're not in construction and those things, the chief cornerstone, basically nothing fit right without it. Now, the building would not stand without it. It wouldn't exist. Um, if you can do the picture, you ever see like an archway or a bridge, and there's the stone in the middle that holds both sides together, the keystone? You pull that out, it collapses. You know, I saw this um, thing on YouTube where this, this company, I think in, in Russia, they were building bridges, tunnels, and what they did is they, they had a truck with like this half round dome, and they would set all these wedged chunks of concrete on it, on the truck, actually set the truck in the ditch, put these concrete wedges against the truck, and it had like wheels on it, and they'd pull it out real quick so it all and was locked in place and they, they had their bridge. That's another quick way of building a bridge, you know? Again, if one of those stones came off that truck wrong, it would all be done, and then you're doing a ton of work to try to get it back to the same spot, I'm sure a lot harder. And so the point was, th this is it. And it's in Scripture, you know. If, if they were to sit there and go, well, prove me right by Scripture. Certainly not. It's already been written. This is prophecy. You know the Word of God. You know what I'm saying is true. You guys are the scholars. You, you've studied the Word. And you've chosen not to see certain things. You've chosen not to see the Lamb that's coming to take away the sins of the world. You've chosen to, to put those scriptures in your mind. You're, you're now reading selectively, looking for what you want. You approach the scripture and come at it from a certain way. 
And so it, it's interesting to see here, and he goes, you know, th this analogy giving this, you know, verse 18, it says, whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but whomever it falls on will be grounded into powder. So there is a new, you know, billboard for the church we'll put out front, you know, come and fall on the stone and be broken, you know. It, it takes humility to come and, and to see and to be broken upon it, you know, to, to not be prideful. And when you really see a life, it is broken on Christ. It comes broken. It doesn't come and stand on the shoulders of Jesus and say, look, I'm on top of God and look how great I am because I'm on top of God. That is not what we see a picture of in Scripture. That's not what we see of Christ coming. He is coming lowly. He came in a donkey. He could have theologically beat these guys up and thrown them around, but yet he's humble. Do you think he could have come off to the crowd and had the crowd kick these Pharisees and scribes right out of the temple at that point? With one word, couldn't he have overthrown the temple? I mean, they were so worried for their life, but yet he even responds in a way where it's not so even direct, where it's clear, it's truthful, but it's giving them opportunity to repent, giving them opportunity to change. Let's look at Scripture. Do you see how this is being fulfilled? Do not be this. You know, it's just I, I love to see the heart of our Savior in these things, how patient he is, how kind he is. What kind of God do we serve? One that we've destroyed servant after servant after servant and even his own son and he's still patient. That's the God we serve. What an amazing thing. And, and he's the chief cornerstone that was rejected. And there will be a time where if you don't accept it, it's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy you. It's going to weigh on you and the weight of it will be too great. Verse 19 and the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against him. They knew. They knew exactly. Certainly not. No, this is exactly against us. They were clear, and their actions were held back by the people. What authority? Look at all the people. Look at what God's doing. Look at what's going on. What, what heart? It's all there. It's all so clear. They knew these things and they rejected. And here are the simple people who did not, didn't, weren't puffed up, didn't have this head knowledge and all these things. Their hearts were in the right place. Their hearts knew what was right. It was clear. They didn't have to have some great theological understanding to see truth. And, you know, sometimes you get challenged on stuff or whatever and you look and go, man, that heart just does not seem right. You know, and for me, when you sit down and you look at Scripture and you go through and you're reading through Scripture, that is the best protection. God is my heart in line with yours. Do I know your heart? You know, when you speak about, um, you know, teaching and teaching the Word with authority is the most important thing is where is my heart in this? Is my heart lined up with what God's doing and what He wants to do in a life? Or is it I'm trying to fit them into my plan and what I'm trying to do? You know, and, and what's scary is we can get so set in our plan, sometimes we're exactly contrary to God where we're wanting to wipe him out. God, this does not fit in. I want you to be quiet. You know, there's, there's been times, I'll be honest, there's been times I've, I've had, a, you know, my own thoughts on something I really wanted to do. 
and, and I go, you know, honey, we should do this. And she goes, I don't think that's quite biblical. Well, let me find you some scriptures so I can make it biblical. I mean, I, I can convince you. Let me find this one and we'll find that one. And Instead of just seeking God in that sense. And, and you know, when it comes to authority in church, it's kind of interesting being a senior pastor and you sit there and you go, okay, um, as God has called me here and placed me here, that, that I'm certain of, that wasn't, you know, wasn't definitely, wasn't my great plan. I, I didn't go to, I went to some schooling, but I didn't go to a theological study thing, so I got a degree, so oops, I should have been a dentist, but I went to school for this, so I need to be a pastor thing. Um, it's clear he placed me here. It's clear there's authority given to leadership and pastors in the church and accountability for those things. But with any authority you would put on that, from what God would convict you of in the Bible and a calling on my life, I had to ask you to personally seek God every day, be in the Word, have your heart current with Him, and Him be that ultimate authority in your life and what's going on. Not me, not any man, not any teacher anywhere, that when you see God's Word, you know His heart and it rules. And when it doesn't line up with Scripture, it doesn't line up. That's not the God you know. That is the best cure for all the other craziness, itching ears, doctrine, lies from this world, all the things that still, if it's, it doesn't matter if it's methamphetamines or some, you know, satanic cult or whatever, if you're current in the word and God's the authority and his, him speaking through his word to you, just open it up and let him speak to you, is speaking to you, that's all. That's where it is. And from that, he will create these other things. If you desire to be a pastor, be consistent in the word. Be surrendered to him. Open your heart. Let him deal with you. So that way he might be able to clearly reflect himself in you. And pray for that. God, deal with me. I want to be used. One of my biggest fears in life, I mean, there was many times in different sports, I sat on the bench. I didn't like it. Basketball, I sat on the bench. I wasn't the worst. I wasn't the worst shot. I wasn't anything else. But I could not play basketball for the life of me. Personal space, knocking people out. When you get fouled out of the first couple seconds of every game and you don't understand why, the coach comes up to you and says, "Next year, football." That's what is the best, you know. And it's just like, you know, you sit there and go, "What do you mean? I didn't understand. He was in my way. I was moving. I, uh, whatever." still don't understand that aspect of that sport. It's like, that guy bumped him just because he fell over when I did it. Why does that make a difference? Anyways, digress. But I don't, I don't, and in life, I don't, God, I don't want to be sitting on the side of what you want to do. Change me, whatever it takes. It's not an ability I can drum up. It's not a, oh, let me get this list done. God, do work in me. Change me. Remove me. Help me to deal with myself. And that's really what it comes down to. Let God be the ultimate authority. Let him be king. They knew who was king. They knew the authority. They did not want him. They wanted to be it. They wanted to be the heirs. They wanted to have that power. And, and they come at him again. Verse 20, it says, And so they watched him, and they sent spies to pretend to be righteous, that they might seize him on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So they send in these spies. Okay, well, you know what? This is not working. We need to go get some political operatives. There's, 
you know, what's amazing in, in, the, in this time in the Bible, okay, they had political advisors, people that were paid to come in. Like, there's nothing new under the sun. I don't care what campaign, and you see all these campaign managers and all this. They had campaign managers. They're probably a little, you know, three-story block building set up next to the temple. Hey, you know, we can improve your social media. You know, just your appearance, let me, you know, we can do give a makeover, you know, if you wear this robe, if you wear that thing, you know. So they, they go pay for and seek some professional help with this Jesus guy, you know. And so then they asked him, so these, these professional pretenders here, they asked him saying, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. And in verse 23, Jesus throws up about their fake flattery. No. I mean, right, they try to butter him up, and it just seems so obvious. It's like, right, you know, besides being so obvious, you're talking to Jesus here that's raising people from the dead, responding to his disciples' thoughts, and then you're going to try to, oh, we're going to put on fake righteousness. We're going to come in. We're going to have the right look. I'm sure they did a study. Okay, well, with the Sanhedrin, you have to come in all dressed like this, but maybe we need to, like, you know, rub some fish on us because that's kind of his thing with the disciples. Maybe you can act like you're a tax collector, and we'll go in there, you know, and they got this whole approach figured out, and, and then let you, we know you don't show favoritism and, you know, butter them all up here. And here's their big catch-22. You know, this is going to blow up social media debate team, you know, final, all the, all, the, all the, you know, research, opposition research. You got verse 22, it says, and it is, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now we got him. The trap is laid. There's no way he's getting out of this. If he says, hey, you need to pay your taxes. Oh, man, you're submitting to Rome. He's for the Roman government and the people are going to hate him, we can just deal with him on that aspect. But man, if he says, don't pay taxes, we can just send Roman here to deal with him. Hey, look, we got this zealot Christian leader over here. This, you know, he's a zealot man. He's, he's got a zealot working for him, you know, besides some tax collectors. So there's a zealot that's one of his disciples. Obviously, he's here. He declares him, you know, if we can just get him to say he's going to be the next king, man, that's not Caesar. He's declaring himself king. He's going to take over him. And he says he's the king of king. We can just send the Roman government after him. So one way we'll get the people against him, and then we can kill him, or we're going to get Roman government just to do it for themselves. This is the question. But Jesus, he perceives their craftiness and says to them, why do you test me? Why do you test me? Simply responding, why do you test me? Verse 24, show me a denarius, which was the Roman coin at the time. Whose image and inscription does it have on it? And they answered and said Caesar's. So at this time, it probably would have been Caesar Augustus would have been on the coin. And, and so you would have his picture on there. And, and the inscription around the coin would have said, Augustus Caesar, the great and divine. In other words, Augustus Caesar, the greatest Caesar, and he was divine. He was a god. He was there. And that's what it would say on this coin. You know, and, and so who, whose image is on there? Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and to God the things which are God's. It's amazing to me how he responds 
And it wasn't with anger. I mean, if somebody was coming to butter you up, if your enemy sent somebody in to butter you up and deal with you, man, I would have been, right? And these people are paid to do it. I mean, these aren't even the scribes. We got people dressed up to look at this. And instead, he responds in a simple way and just makes things clear or what they are. And verse 26 says, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people and they marveled at his answers and kept silent. So here this opposition, these trained men to come in and get there, go in and they can't catch him. They just, his, they can't be crafty enough. They can't get him in it. And nonetheless, they're marveling at what he did say. So now your paid opposition is sitting there with their jaws draw wide open and listening. They're silent. Now they're listening to what he says. They're just, oh, wait a minute. We didn't realize what we were coming up against, you know? And it's interesting. When you look at rendering, therefore, to Caesar what the things that are Caesar's, um, a Roman seal was belonged to Rome. It belonged, it represented Rome. If you think of an envelope or a package, you did not break that seal. That was the equivalent of being put to death. That's why a Roman seal on a letter or something like that back in that day, it was to destroy that person, to say that person's of no value to be able to break their seal. The only time you could break a seal is when a person died without direct permission from that person to do so. So to have a coin with the Roman seal on it, it wasn't your money. They didn't ever have this thought of, oh, that's my money, that's my denarius. That is Caesar's denarius whom I get to use at his privilege. That was their thinking when it came to money. We don't think of our money that way. We don't go, oh, look, this is George Washington or this penny is, you know, you know Abraham Lincoln's penny and I'm so thankful for Abraham Lincoln for the huge jar of pennies in my corner. No, it, it isn't that kind of thought process. They believed ownership of that bling belonged to Rome. And the comparison here is, okay, so give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and there's that Roman government does have a claim to it. They have a right to it, and they have an authority to it. And, and you are responsible if you possess that, and their seal is on you, and you work within it, you had a responsibility to Rome. It's interesting that that very hand that here holds that coin and says whose seal on this will be pierced in a couple days by that same government, that same authority. Even though Christ went willing to the cross, he allowed that government and their ruling to have authority over him. He didn't argue with the authority. He submitted to it and submitted to God and God's will and what he was doing through that. And so you have that aspect of it, but then you have such a greater aspect. If you think you need by this to be clear and responsible to our government, you know, and the God, God says, hey, he places kings and stuff over you to submit to those authorities. Well, how much more to God, whose seal is on your heart, who we are created in his image? Do you, and he, does he have a right over you? It is not yours. Your life is not yours. It is not I mean, we, 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 we get this thought of it's on loan. It belongs to somebody else. We were created in an image. And it's, it begs to, as you look through this, it begs to look at things and, and how they continually to come at them, you know? To think that Jesus, when he sat there and wept for the nation, wept for Jerusalem, 
was these things what he was weeping for, not what he would go through, but that they would continually see this and reject him, this sadness, this attack. He wasn't angry at them, he was saddened by it. And he simply responds, making it clear. He could have said, hey, who's on that? Render to Caesar what's Caesar, and ended there, couldn't he have? No, I'm going to give you the truth. Who's on your heart? Who made you? What do you belong to? Who do you belong to? You belong to God and me. It's interesting that the question came into my mind, is Jesus your king or is he king of you? I think sometimes we can get there and go, yes, he is our personal Lord and Savior. He is my king. But I think sometimes we can think he is my king and he's like, you know, my king in the deck of cards I have and I can pull them out when I need them, you know, and I'm going to use them to my advantage. Instead, that he is king over me. You know, when we look at decisions in our lives and going forward and how we spend our time and we live our lives, is he your king and is he directing your life or is he just that tool you can pull out to get something done, to get something here or there, you know? I, I, I shored the thing of, you know, the kids going, you know, do we go to Disneyland this week or next week? Lord, do I get that new car this week or next week? And he goes, will you obey me this week? I mean, right? We can do that with God. I, I you know, we sit there and go, Lord, let me ask you this catch-22 question. I'm definitely not a Pharisee, but do I you know, ever do that? Okay, God, I really want this or that. And, you know, in the Bible, they cast lots. So I don't know anybody named Lot, but I have a quarter. No. So, you know, and you flip and go, okay, God, if this happens or that happens, or, you know, I, you know the things you do, you know. But I'll, I'm, more, I'm more biblical than you guys with that. I do not cast coins. I mean, that's Caesar's money or U.S. money. I won't do that, no. What I got, God, if the answer is yes, the next letter I see in the Bible is going to be a Y. If it's no, I'm going to see an N. No. Oh, it's a W. What does that mean? No. Um, I did that as a child, actually. But anyways, so you sit there and we think, though, and go, is, is, is God king of you? Is he king of our lives? And is there an area where I am saying, God, I don't want you to be king of this. I want you to be my king for my advantage. I want you to have your authority and your direction in it, but I don't want you to tell me what to do with it. I just want you to make it happen. So when I go into that situation, I want to do what I want to do, and I want to have your backing with it. Instead of going, God, be Lord of my life. God, I'll serve you in ministry. I'll serve you in these areas if I get this in return. If I don't have to go through suffering. If I don't have to do these. If it's not hardship. You know, and, and it's hard, you know, it's like even going up and, and um, you sit there and you look and you, you go, man, sometimes it, it seems rough. But God loves us and he takes us through rough things. He's going to produce something great out of it. You know, seeing Bob, Scott, and his wife go through things, and you're up there, and you're serving faithfully 25 years, and then this thing happens. You end up physically ill. There's a problem in the church, and then your house burns down, and, you know, you just go, Lord, don't they deserve it? Come on, Lord, bless them. And he goes, I am, just not the way you would think. I'm doing something amazing in them. You know, I'm, I, they're, they're, they're my servants and I love them and I have this awesome plan and you need to stay out of it. You know, just pray that I'm going to, you know, pray for them. Pray that God's, you know, just continue to work in them and do what he's going to do. You know, and so even just, you know, with helping them stuff, God, how do we help them? How do we bless them? What do we show, you know? 
and, and you look at those things. I'm, I'm thankful. I would have, if the fires weren't going on up there, we wouldn't have been up there in a truck and wouldn't have ran into him at the church. He wouldn't have been at the church if his house wasn't burnt down, you know. I wouldn't have ever met the man, and I really treasure it. I mean, I, I get to talk to him a lot. It's awesome just having an older brother in the Lord that physically hurts himself often enough as me. Yeah, I mean, just we're very like-minded in that sense. You know, if you can ever find somebody that looks like you 20 years from now and you can learn some lessons early, take it now. But just, you know, his, his just openness with me and, and just simple boldness, you know. I always love those people where they say something that's like totally cuts to the heart and they say it lightheartedly and don't even have to apologize. I love those relationships, right? Like, yeah, duh. And you can just admit it. But you look at what God's doing in those situations and go, God, I want you to be king of my life. No matter where it takes me, whatever you put me in, whatever your provision, I'm going to trust in your provision. No matter where I live, what I drive, what I eat, how my health is, God, I want you to be king. I want you to be king over it all. And really, that's where it comes down to it. These men did not want God to be king. They were set in their power, they had their position, and even though they knew the truth, their hearts were set on other things. And they became against God. The very thing they should have been about, the very thing they should have celebrated, they hated and were against. It's the biggest thing in all of this is going, how, 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 do you, how do you guard yourself against that? How do you guard yourself against, how, how do you, you know, I don't know about you guys, sometimes it's hard to question my actions. I see my heart uh, rise up and want things. It's, it's just constantly, some can be a battle. And the only time I'm doing well where it's not a constant battle is when I'm in the Word and He is the authority of my life each and every day. You know, you talk about, you know, the daily reading plan or whatever. Be in the Word each and every day. Let Him be that authority. Let Him be king in your life. And don't come to the Scripture and go, okay, God, I want to justify myself or my actions or my thought. Instead, go, God, what do you want to change in me? What do you want to do different? I need to be changed. God, make me safe. And just continually come to the Word of God like that. And that's, that's it. You know, and he, he will lift you up. He will move you around. He's going to do what he wants. But you can have total peace in that because our God is loving. He's patient. He's humble. He doesn't burst into your, you know, you're not sitting there in the morning devotions and he bursts in and goes, what the heck are you doing? No, he's faithful to send your wife in and say that. No, you know, you sit there and you look at it and it's just amazing to see that's the loving God we serve. And when you realize He's loving and that way with you, how are we to be to others? Loving, patient, slow to respond. You know, it's so easy sometimes, you know, when, when we get a, when we get a um, skewed off view, self-righteous view of ourselves, that's usually when we're the most judgmental of others. You know, if you, you find yourself not being able to handle other people's uh, sin with any kind of grace, loving, or humility, usually it's because you're not where you're supposed to be. Your heart's off and it's away. You know, or if you're approving of it, if you're supporting it, if you're involved in it. So that's, you know, as we go through the Word of God, you know, and we look at these, these Pharisees that knew Him, should have known Him, should have known God and all those things and missed Him, that's so sad. And I don't ever want to be that. And so my prayer is for me and for all of us just to be 
letting God be that authority. Let his stamp be on his heart. It is his rightful place. It's, his seal is on us. We don't belong to ourselves. And I, sometimes I had to remind myself of that every minute of the day, going, God, it's not about me. It's not about me, you know. And, and we can do it so many times, you know. You get up on a roof and it's hot, going, God, this weather, this, that, or this, or that. I mean, I complain a lot. If, if, you, if you're bold enough, sit down and see how many times you complain at God for something in your life each day. At first you won't realize, oh, no, I'm not really complaining about God. The weather is God. Yeah, right? Instead of God, give me the strength or this or that, you know, and say, hey, this weather isn't, you know, I don't particularly like this 100 degree weather, God. You know, a breeze would be nice, but if not, I'll trust you, keep me alive and enough water, and we'll go on. But instead of just complaining about, gosh, this weather, you know, why this week? You know, the week before it would have been cooler or this or that, you know. And then the weekend comes and, wow, I love this warm weather where I can get out and go in the water and not freeze. And anyways. That's just me. I know you guys aren't, aren't that fickle with the Lord and some things. But you could try that if you wanted to be bold. Let's pray. If uh, worship leader come up as we close. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you just for you. Be Lord of our lives, God. Let your impression on us would be evident to us and those around us that we would be your light to the world. That we'd be a clear representation of you that we would not let anything clutter that up that we'd have confidence because we know you. We know your heart. God, continue to reveal yourself to us. Continue to reveal our hearts to us that we would change, that we would grow. God, for, for any men that desire to just lead more, to, to be pastors, if it, not even of just their own homes, but even in fellowship, that they, were, they would have ministry. God, I just pray you would just give them a peace that you're faithful to work that it's all about you, God, and that you can just open up and, and prepare them for that work. God, that their hearts would be open to you each day, that you would make just many men, Father, safe to be able just to love and encourage those around us, God. For those that are just falling away, that are struggling, the, this dark world, the sin and the things that go on, the grieved things, God, give us a heart, give us a vision that we wouldn't become numb to it, but that we would have the right response, that we would truly be evidence of you, that people would see your seal on our lives, that there would be no questioning of the God and the authority in which he works and moves through this world. In Jesus' name, amen.